Well, good morning, and please return in your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 3. We'll pick up at verse 15 this week. Now, we are moving steadily toward passages that will talk to us with words like sanctification and fruit of the Spirit and some of these, um, these other ideas that he's going to bring in. This week, we continue to be, though, in a portion of his letter that is bringing us words like promise and law and curse, uh, like we saw the week before. Uh, we, we heard Paul last week uh, mention some categories that are very helpful for us. He said, uh, those who are of faith are blessed, and all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. You remember when he gave those distinctions? And he's told us by now that we who are of the faith of Abraham are the ones who inherit the promise that came to Abraham. He called it, in verse 14, the promised spirit. Now, we've been seeing him use the word law in these verses uh, as a shorthand for a covenant, law in terms of the law covenant. And in fact, that's uh, the very reason that he'll have to make the clarification that he's going to make for us this morning in our text. What I mean is this, Paul has been comparing two covenants, the Abrahamic covenant and the law covenant that came through Moses. And for that reason, the objection he's going to anticipate this morning is this. Paul, are you pitting Abraham against Moses? Or are we supposed to think of these two covenants as somehow in competition with each other, working against each other? And the answer he's going to give us that will start in verse 15 is going to be, Moses was not an addition to or a change to God's covenant with Abraham. It had its own specific purposes. Now, there are, there are really two ways we could approach our uh, text this morning. We're going to study verses 15 to 22 this morning. Uh, and there's a lot here. There's a lot of, of technical things here. And that's one way we could approach these verses. And we, we need to in some ways. And, and, and as uh, through a sort of, of a technical approach. Uh, and the reason that we need to take some of those things into consideration is because he's giving us really important information about the relationship between these two covenants. And we need to hear him and understand it because he's giving us something that is very hard to do. He's giving us a way to understand what's happening in the giving of the Mosaic law. This is something that theologians have long spoken of as one of the most complicated or difficult things to understand in terms of Paul's writing. I've read a number of people sort of lament about how difficult this can be. And just by way of representation, one of them, James Dunn, wrote this. He said, there is nothing quite so complex in Paul's theology as the role and function which he attributes to the law. It's complex. And if this is some of what Paul is explaining for us here, we're going to have to go with him and really work to understand the distinctions and the points that he's making. So we need to do that. And we'll do that this morning. But as we're getting Paul's help in grasping some of these things in a technical way, there's another way that we can come at our verses this morning as well that we need to do. And this one is going to really structure our path through verses 15 to 22 this morning. The second way. And this is a to, to view these verses in a doxological way. A doxology, the giving of glory and praise to God, we need to think about what Paul's going to say here 
doxologically. Because inherent in our giving praise and glory to God, inherent in that is a posture of humility. Isn't that required of us if we're going to come and properly give praise to God? And what Paul tells us here humbles us, deeply humbles us. There are two ways in particular that that happens. I think in verses 15 to 18, the first thing that we'll see is that we are humbled here in the reminder that our everything, your everything, rests on God's willingness to make a promise. It's a humbling reality that he's going to highlight here. We're also humbled, and we'll see in verses 19 to 22, uh, something that humbles us in the reminder it gives us that God's law constantly serves us notice that we fall short of his righteous standard. He gives us his perfect law, and we come to it, uh, and we are faced with, with something that puts us in a posture And it's the posture that cries out, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is the posture that God's law brings us to, and it's a humbled one, and we need it. And we'll be reminded of that this morning as well. If you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. So this is Galatians 3, verses 15 to 22. He continues in this way. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it, is no, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So we begin here looking at verses 15 to 18 as a unit. Here's what we find. Everything rests on God's willingness to make a promise. Notice that verse 15 begins by Paul setting up an example. He says, to give a human example, brothers, and then he proceeds. So whatever he's about to say, it is, a, it is an exemplary situation that addresses the objections that he is anticipating, that he's dealing with, right? This is going to be in service to the point he's making about Abraham and Moses. And here's what he says. He moves to the realm of man-made covenants between two human beings. 
beings. And he says what they all know to be true, even with a man-made covenant. No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. A second covenant, when made, is just that. It's another covenant. It's a separate second covenant, and it does not annul the first one, and it does not represent an insertion of additional provisions into the first one. And this is an argument he's making from the lesser to the greater. Uh, Even man-made covenants are like this. Even man-made covenants are irrevocable once they have been inaugurated, and they can't just be supplanted, and no one comes after the fact and adds to them. If that's the case with man-made covenants, how much more a covenant given by God? You see the way he's arguing from the lesser to the greater to make this point. And so what's clear in verse 15 is that however God established the transmission of the inheritance, he's been making that point that with Abraham, God covenantally promised something in particular. Uh, He transmitted an inheritance to Abraham. Uh, And however he uh, established the transmission of the inheritance, it sticks. This is the point that he's making. Future events did not change it. Now, let's bypass for just a moment verse 16, uh, and we'll come back to it, because he completes the point he's making with this human example in verses 17 and 18. Look at verse 17. He says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And notice what he's talking about here. This thing that came 430 years after Abraham's promise, he calls it the law. What is he talking about? What is it that came 430 years after Abraham? Is he talking about the eternal moral law of God? Is that what arrived on the scene 430 years after Abraham? Of course not, right? That is eternal. That is a reflection of the character of God. It's always his standard. That does not show up 430 years after Abraham. What he's talking about is the arrival of the Mosaic law. Paul is simply drawing off of what's said in Exodus 1240 when it tells us that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt for 430 years. The law as he's using that word, came 430 years after promise came. He's giving us a pretty simple chronology. And his point is, that law doesn't annul a prior covenant that God ratified. It cannot, because doing so would make God's promise void. Now that's spelled out in verse 18. God declared, he tells us here, that the inheritance come through receiving a promise. That's what God declared Uh, when he spoke to Abraham. But if it now comes by law, it no longer comes by promise. Again, law, promise, shorthand words. This is known as a synecdoche, a part for the whole, using a word to reflect uh, the larger reality. Law is the Mosaic law covenant. Promise is the Abrahamic covenant. So the inheritance cannot be transferred into a different covenantal delivery system. God ordained that the inheritance would come through his promises to Abraham, 
that cannot now be changed so that the inheritance comes through means of another covenant. And by the way, you can see pretty clearly then in verse 18 what the Judaizers were trying to do to Paul's original audience there. They were arguing that submission to the law was an integral part of possessing the inheritance of God's people. You want to really belong to God's people? You want to be a part of the inheritance of his children? Well, things changed in time, and God has arranged so that that now will come through the particular law covenant and its provisions. And Paul says, no. God gave it by a promise, and it was received by hearing with faith. We've been seeing this for weeks now. So what we, what we need then is simply to understand what God promised concerning that inheritance to Abraham. Then we'll know, now, now we can know where to hang our hats. We have the categories in place as they are intended. Now we know where to rest our hope. Now we know how we are to approach God. So what then had God promised about the inheritance to Abraham? Now we're ready to look at verse 16. He gets very specific here, and in some ways that are extremely helpful. Look at verse 16. He says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul has had the hat of a lawyer on for a while now. He puts another hat on on top of that here, the hat of a grammar teacher. Uh, to make a really important point of interpretation, right? Uh, the promises to Abraham were to him, and they were directed at, he clarifies, a singular, particular seed or offspring of Abraham. The reason he needs to do that is, is just a, uh, an inevitable problem of language. There's a problem that this word seed can have in Hebrew, what God spoke to and wrote down uh, in Old Testament Scripture, the Greek version of the Old Testament, Greek New Testament, English, the word seed in English, the word seed in Greek, the word seed in Hebrew, they all suffer from a particular difficulty. And that is that that word singular seed can be used as a collective noun. So I just can't be sure when I find the word seed if I'm talking about one seed or a collective group of seeds. Right? Think of the sentence. The farmer grabbed the seed and went into the field. Well, what did he do? Did he grab a seed and go out into the field? Maybe. That, that would work in that sentence. Or did he grab a big bag of seed and go out into the field? Well, maybe. And I'm going to guess it's probably the second one in that case. Right? Um, context is going to uh, determine this. Additional clues are going to be needed as to what that writer or speaker meant. And so we have a good example of it even with our own English word here. And what Paul's making clear is that the recipient of the Abrahamic promises, when God said, I will give this land to you and to your offspring or your seed, same word, those promises were always intended to reach the point of a singular recipient. And that recipient's name is Jesus Christ. This was the intention. Now that's really important for him to clarify for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But we need to understand he's not giving us something new when he makes that clarification. The scripture has been abundantly clear from the beginning 
that, that uh, this idea of hoping and waiting for a singular recipient of these promises is what God has intended in redemptive history. History has borne down this narrowing down to a single individual. The point is made very clear from the back to the very first promise God ever made. What's the first place we find in this flow of redemptive history? Well, it's Genesis 3.15, and this same word shows up there. Uh, I will, this is God speaking to the serpent, you remember? I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your, here's the same word, seed or offspring, and her seed or offspring. Oh, one? Many? What's the next thing he says? He speaks about that seed or offspring, and he says, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He is not ambiguous when it comes to number. He is a singular pronoun. So God speaks about this coming promised seed of the woman and makes abundantly clear, I'm not talking about a group of people who are going to come here. I'm talking about one, one seed who will come and fulfill these promises. Now, that promise of a singular is fulfilled many times in redemptive history, typologically. And even in a group way, the, the people of Israel have times of, of uh, conquering the enemies of God that typify this. Individually, for example, David crushes the head of the enemy of God's people with a stone, chops off his head. This is a typological fulfillment of that promise. You have Jael. Uh, crushing the head of the enemy of God's people with a big tent peg through the temple. Very much a typological fulfillment of this promise. So it's fulfilled in a number of ways by means of sign and picture all the way through. But who was God speaking about directly in Genesis 3.15? One. One seed who will come and do this thing. So we see it in the original promise in Genesis 3. But we see it in, even in the way that the whole of redemptive history moves. We see God take Abraham and those promises to Abraham, and even after God has grown Abraham into an entire nation of people, we see God moving his promise toward a single individual. We see it especially through the Davidic covenant. God's promises he had made to Abraham are repeated again and given to David. Uh, and promises are made then regarding David's offspring. 2 Samuel 7.12, God says to David, I will raise up your, here we go again, seed slash offspring, same word. I will raise up your seed after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Ah, so still the intention is aiming toward a single seed. Now it's a seed through the line of David, who has himself come from Abraham. So there's been this clear uh, statement of a promised coming individual recipient of these promises all the way along. Now that's true, and it's true what we sing, what we teach our kids to sing. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them, so the, the song is not telling us a lie about that. We are not saying here that there are not many offspring of Abraham, even in terms of the recipients of this promise. And even Paul, at the end of this chapter, you can look down at verse 29 of this chapter, he's going to use this word in a plural way. 
Verse 29 says, and if you, that's a plural pronoun there, if you, plural, are Christ's, then you, plural, are Abraham's seed slash offspring. Here's that word again. Heirs according to promise. It's not as if there's nothing true about that. The point here and the point that Paul is making very powerfully is this. What did God intend in the original promise? The original promise belonged to Abraham and aimed at a particular singular seed, Jesus Christ. Any who will be allowed the unspeakable privilege of sharing in that promised inheritance will receive it in the same way, by believing in the promise of God. And only those whom God has united to this singular seed can do so. Now, before moving past verse 18, we need to stop and consider what we have just seen in verses 15 to 18. God has just declared that anybody who will ever share in the inheritance of the promised spirit, that spirit who grants forgiveness and righteousness, anyone who will ever share in that inheritance is going to do so by believing a promise. Now, some, some of my friends, some people who have known me for a long time, will complain that I can tend to overblow something. If I tell them it's the best food you've ever eaten in your life or the best movie you have ever seen, they know now to take it with a grain of salt because I'll get excited about something and blow it out of proportion. Can I make a suggestion to you that I, and I don't think I'm doing that in this. Here's my suggestion. This reality that we're seeing here, that we share in that inheritance in one way, by believing a promise, that reality that God is bringing back to our attention this morning might mean that a drastic change is in order in your life. It might mean that. There may be a way you can tell if that's a place that you're in right now or not. You might be able to check your prayer life to look for the answer to that question. There are two kinds of prayers. Both of them are good prayers. Both of them are required of us. And then they sound something like this. Here's the first kind of prayer that I will pray uh, and that I must pray. Lord, help me to be a better father. Help me to be more consistent in prayer. Father, grant me success in battling this sinful struggle. That's one kind of prayer that I will pray. There's another kind of prayer that I will pray, and it sounds like this. Lord, help me to trust you more. Help me to rest in the goodness and faithfulness of your promises. Two essential prayers, right? Two good prayers, two required prayers. But which one of them is at the, which one of them is the base layer of my prayer life? Which one has a foundational place as opposed to the other? I would suggest to you that putting the wrong one of those kinds of prayers at the base layer is nothing short of catastrophic. Could it be that the 
and I mean in the church today, could it be that the epidemic we see of things like peace-destroying anxiety, joy-destroying cynicism, um, momentum-destroying discouragement, you know what I mean by that? Could it be that the fact of their flourishing inside the body of Christ could be tied to the fact that our base layer to our prayer life has become one of those prayers rather than the other? And there's something we know to be true about our prayers. The scriptures tell us that it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. What comes out in my prayers is a reflection of where my heart is at. And again, I'll say both of those prayers are essential and needed. But I'm asking a question about the base layer of my hopes, my thoughts, my prayers. Maybe we'll ask it this way, and I'm speaking to believers here this morning. Christian, are you safe? Are you blessed by God? Are you an heir of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus? What's the answer to that question? Yes. The answer to all three questions is yes. (coughs) Why? Why is the answer yes? My friends, we know this to be true, but sometimes we don't know it to be true. The only reason you have ever been saved had nothing at all to do with your productivity. Nothing at all. You are safe for one reason and one reason only. And that's because God looked upon weak, broken, wretched you and decided to make you a promise. Romans 4, 5, but to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. That's the belief in a promise God has made about who he is and what he will do. His faith is credited as righteousness. That faith does not have some inherent power in and of itself. It's not as if that faith is a meritorious work. This is all the case because God made this promise. He made it to Abraham and he makes it to us. You're everything rests on God's willingness to make a promise. Now, if you need a reminder this morning as to why that humbling reality is such good news, all you need to do is keep reading in our passage because we find quickly the second way in which we are humble and it's very much in service to the first. It's the reminder that we get about the purpose and effect of the law. Look again at verses 19 to 22. He makes Two points here about the law, and they go together. The first one is in verses 19 and 20. Here's the question. Why, what is the purpose of the law? If verse 18 is right, then God gave his blessed inheritance by means of a promise to Abraham. 
If, that's, if, if the means has been established by which we might inherit the, this promise from God, then what else is needed? Why did he then proceed to give the law? Look at verse 19. Why then the law? Let's hear his answer and work through this. He says, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Let me restate the point that we see here in verse 19, and we're going to walk through this. What Paul is saying in verse 19 is that God gave the law, and we'll look at each of these pieces. God gave the law as a temporary measure to guard and guide and protect Abraham's physical offspring, plural, until it produced his physical offspring, singular. Law is given in service to the fulfillment of that promise. We're walking through it, so let me say it one more time. God gave the law as a temporary measure to guide and protect Abraham's physical offspring, plural, until it produced his physical offspring, singular. The one tricky phrase here in verse 19 that needs some explanation, is where Paul says that the law was added because of transgressions. What does he mean by that? What use of the law is he referring to here? We have understood that the law, even in reference to sin, the law brings, uh, has many uses, and it does many things. The law reveals sin. The law even increases sin. Romans 5.20 says that. The giving of the law in a particular um, context obviously has a restraining effect upon sin. We think of that as sort of a civil use of the law. The law also served as a guide to the people of God as to how they should live. In the law, they had um, ceremonial requirements. They had religious requirements. And many of these ceremonies and such and restrictions uh, set the Jews apart from the Gentile world around them. That's another use of the law, is that it distinguished and actually excluded the Jews from the world around them. I think that there, there are at least elements of most all of that here in this statement in verse 19. The law served as a means to preserve Abraham's physical offspring, plural, until the coming of that singular recipient of the promise. In other words, you can think of it like a timeline. Here God gives a promise to Abraham to be received by his offspring, who had another 2,000 years of history before he was going to be born. Right? God ordained in the fullness of time that Christ would come, exactly when he intended him to, and that happened to be something like 2,000 years after this promise is made. How in the world is this people going to continue to exist for 2,000 years. I mean, we know God is a God who raises up nations and brings down nations. We see from the Canaanites that a nation exists until the fullness of their iniquity is complete, and then, boom, there they go. How will sin in the midst of a nation not get them destroyed before the Messiah can arrive? Well, the law did it. It gave them the means of things like humility, on a regular basis. It gave them a sanctified existence. 
It gave them the sacrificial system to keep them thinking in terms of repentance, to keep them with object lessons to teach their children, generation after generation. It protected against sin until the offspring arrived to whom the promise had been made. So we're seeing in verse 19 two two things about this law. And kids, if you're filling out that sheet in the back, here's the answer to that hard question on the sheet. We see the law was temporary by design. And we see that the law was inherently, here's a big word, Christotelic. Now, don't worry, I didn't ask the kids to write that word down, but I did ask them to tell me what it means. What does Christotelic mean? It means that the law inherently had Christ and the service of Christ as its end, as its goal. The law served a Christotelic function. Now, we're talking here about a covenant, and a covenant in which there are moral laws given. Uh, There's a number of elements here. What does this mean, then, about God's commands that have been recorded in Scripture uh, and, uh, and are in the law that God gave through Moses, for example? Does this mean that God's commands recorded in Scripture no longer serve to guide God's people? They no longer show us God's wisdom? Is that what we're saying here? Because this had an end, uh, as he puts it in verse 19, added because of transgressions until the offspring should come. Does that mean that those purposes no longer are served? Of course, the answer to that has to be no. Otherwise, how could the New Testament point back to those things as uh, justification like they do? Otherwise, how do we find the continued holding up of Old Testament Scripture uh, as authoritative? But see, that's not Paul's point here. It's not what he's, he's not dealing with that. His point is that the law, as law covenant, had a particular temporal purpose. And its purpose was accomplished when Christ came. So the law covenant is shown to exist in service of the promise. One is superior to the other, and one then is the servant of the other. And that's also clear in the fact that he mentions here that the Abrahamic covenant was unmediated. He talks about mediation here in these verses. The Abrahamic covenant was God giving a promise directly to Abraham and directly to his offspring, singular. But the Mosaic covenant, you see at the end of verse 19, it was put into place through angels by an intermediary. Not only does that show it to be lesser in that way, it also proves what we were just saying about sin in, this, in that particular context and the endangerment from that sin that the law covenant served to guard against. Because you only need an intermediary where there is discord and opposition. He says in verse 20, Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Charles Spurgeon says something here that I think is very helpful to point out the lack of unity that an intermediary implies. Listen to what he wrote. He says, A mediator is not needed for persons of one heart and of one soul. I need no mediator between myself and my brother, between myself and my son, between myself and my wife. We are perfectly at one already, and no mediator is wanted. So it is clear that if there is a mediator, it is for two persons, between whom there is some ground of difference. 
This proves that God and men were opposed, or a mediator would not have been needed. Thus, the giving of the law showed man's state of alienation. So what we've seen in verses 19 and 20, then, is that this shows us that the law covenant through Moses served a particular need because of sin, and it did so temporarily. It did so until the promised seed would come. The second point that he makes here about the law, and this finishes us out in verses 21 and 22, is that the law and the promise both serve God's plan but play different roles. The law, he tells us here, is not contrary to the promise because the law and the promise fit together in the economy of God's plan by playing different roles. Look at verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. End of verse 21, you see it? If a law had been given that could give life, could the law give life? No. The promise, by contrast, does provide life. The promise is the means by which life is secured, by grace alone. The law serves in all the ways that we have described this morning to prepare the way for receiving the promise. So the way that these are not in conflict is this, he says. The law was not trying to give life. It was not the reason for which it was given. It could not do so. So then it's not in competition with God's promises. In fact, as we've said, and as he says it here, it helped imprison everything under sin. It put us in, that is to say, a prime place to be looking for, hoping for, a promise that we could put our trust in. And this is exactly what he says in verse 22. But do you notice that he expands it here? He doesn't say, the law imprisoned everything under sin. You notice that? Although that's really the point that he's been making. But he goes out of his way to rephrase it here, to say it's not just the law as a covenant that does this. It's, it's not, that's not what imprisons everyone under sin, not exclusively. What imprisons us is the revelation we have from God that leaves us without excuse. Notice Paul's choice to attribute this there to Scripture, not to law or even to God. All of those would be right. In verse 22, he might have said, but God imprisoned everything under sin. He might have said, but the law imprisoned everything under sin. He says, the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. It is God through his revelatory work which certainly includes the Mosaic Covenant, but it is much more than just the covenant. It's God through his revelatory work who has imprisoned everything under sin. And he puts it that way in Romans 11, 32. He says the same thing with different words. He says there, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. I mean, Paul is leaving us inescapably in need of a promise. This has been God's intention. The law served this end. It served it beautifully. It served it according to design. And the law covenant did this as a reflection of the eternal 
law of God that left even Gentiles before the coming of Christ under the same curse of the law. Now, let me ask sort of a closing question here. What encouragement does Paul want his hearers, including us, to take from this? I think there's a near and a far encouragement we can take. There's a particular Jew-Gentile encouragement here, and we would expect that given who he's writing to and the situation he's addressing directly. Here's the encouragement. Your salvation, if you are in Christ, your salvation was granted you by a promise apart from the law covenant. So he says to these Galatians, do not be fooled by those who try to tell you that you must incorporate old covenant regulations to be saved. The promise came to you by believing and Abraham was the same. It's always been this way. This is how he established the giving of the promise. And once the covenant has been made with God, no one's going to annul it or make it void. That's a great encouragement. It's encouraging to us today, even though we're not in that particular context. But there is also, I think, a general encouragement that we constantly stand in need of hearing today. And it is this. You If you are in Christ, if you have been forgiven of your sins, if there is no condemnation now for you, as Romans promises believers, what we find here is you began through a promise. You continue through a promise. And you will find completion through a promise. As laws come into the picture that reveal your sin, Let them be the scripture that they are. Talking about finding law in scripture. It is scripture. And it is to inform us and guide us and bring us to repentance and lead us always back to Christ. But the intent of the law was always to drive to hopelessness only apart from Christ. It was always in service to the gracious mercy and promises of God if you will only but humble yourself. Do you see then that the feeling that says, I'm not good enough, I cannot come to Christ, after all, just look at me. Do you see that that is a false humility? That is not humility before the revelation of God. That's a false humility. Do you see that it's actually a stubbornness to take that kind of a posture? The call of God throughout his word, and that we see here this morning, is a call to true humility. And I would close this with Psalm 138, verse 6. Though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty, the proud, he knows from afar.